Take your copy of God's Word and open it with me to the Gospel of John. We're going to pick up where we left off when we were last in our series through the Gospel of John three weeks ago. We'll be in John chapter 6, starting in verse 36 through verse 47. John 6, verses 36 through 47. While you're turning there, there's a man whose name was in the news recently by the name of Scott Stallings. He is a realtor in the state of Georgia, and in his spare time, he likes to play golf. He doesn't get to play that often. He says he's not very good, but he mainly watches on TV. So you can imagine how excited he was this past January when he went to his mailbox and opened it up, and inside he found an invitation to the Masters Tournament. Now, if you don't know what the Masters is, that's like the biggest golf tournament in the United States every single year. And for Scott Stallings, it had always been a dream of his to be able to attend the Masters, but he was never able to go. And so here is this invitation with his name on it. It even had the name of his wife, Jennifer. He quickly discovered, however, that there was an error. It turns out that there's another man in the state of Georgia who is also named Scott Stallings, who is a golfer on the PGA Tour. It turns out that this other Scott Stallings is also married to someone named Jennifer. This invitation was not an invitation to watch the Masters Tournament. It was an invitation to play in the Masters Tournament. And it turns out the invitation that was supposed to go to Scott Stallings, the golfer, was accidentally sent to Scott Stallings, the realtor. And when he found out that a mistake had been made, he reached out to the other Scott Stallings and sent him the invitation that should have gone to him at the very beginning. And in case you're wondering, yes, Scott Stallings, the golfer, invited Scott Stallings, the realtor, to attend the Master Tournament this year. Well, I tell you all of this because there is another invitation that has been sent to every man, woman, boy, and girl. This invitation is for everyone, and no one receives this invitation in error. You will not find this invitation in your mailbox. You will find it right here in the Word of God. It is God's invitation to eternal life and heaven. It is the invitation that Jesus gave us where we left off in our study of John in verse 35 when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. It's an invitation to come, an invitation to believe, an invitation to find Jesus to be the bread of life, the only one who can save us and fill us and satisfy us. 
Unfortunately, as we read through John chapter 6, we discover that most of the people in the crowd that day did not accept this invitation. But in these verses, Jesus talks about that invitation that he offers us in verse 35. He tells us a little bit about how God extends that invitation to all of us. Now, let me just tell you these verses that we're going to read. This is a very beautiful passage of Scripture with some very encouraging truths. It is also a very deep doctrinal passage of Scripture as well. I'm sure I will not uncover every single gem that is in this text, but as we read through this passage, there are three things in particular that I want you to see, three ways in which God extends this invitation to us, and first of all, He does it by giving us to the Son. By giving us to the Son. Look at verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. We'll see before we're finished why they did not believe. But verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. There is so much in these verses, but notice first of all that Jesus spoke of those who come to him as those the Father gives me. It's in the present tense. You can translate that, those the Father is giving me. Every time someone is saved, that's another gift that God the Father gives to God the Son. And this is how Jesus refers to those who do accept this invitation to come and believe in Jesus as the bread of life. They are given to him by the Father. Now, can we just pause for just a moment and let that sink in? Can we just pause for just a moment and think about how beautiful this is, how wonderful this is, how mind-blowing this is, that every believer is not only a gift from God, that by itself would be incredible, but to think that every believer is a gift from God the Father to God the Son. What does that say about your value? What does that say about your worth? What kind of gift is fitting for deity to give to deity? I said this about a month ago, but I'm going to say this again. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. God the Father loves God the Son, so Jesus said the Father gives gifts to the Son. And you, Christian brother, you, Christian sister, you are that gift. Now, if you believe that, say, wow. wow. This is incredible. 
This is amazing. Now, this is also very deep. When we read verse 37, this verse kind of reminds me of a suspension bridge. If you've ever driven across a suspension bridge, I remember five years ago, my wife and I were in San Francisco, and of course, we had to drive across the Golden Gate Bridge. If you've ever driven across or seen a suspension bridge, you will notice you have two towers, and in between those towers, you have all of these cables that pull the whole weight of the bridge towards and upon those two towers. That is how uh, that bridge is able to stand, and that is how it works. When we read verse 37, we have these two theological towers. We have these two truths. And yes, there is tension between the two. There are some things that we will not be able to fully understand or explain on this side of heaven, and yet we accept both of these truths. On the one hand, there's the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God. Jesus said, all the Father gives me. The believer is given by the Father to the Son. That's God's sovereignty. But then there's this other tower of human responsibility. He says, will come to me. We must come. We must believe. And we are accountable for how we respond to this invitation that God has given to us. And a lot of people will want to keep one of those two towers and get rid of the other. But without both towers, the bridge collapses. Both of these towers, both of these truths, we embrace and we accept with the tension along with it. And because God the Father gives us to God the Son, I want you to notice what Jesus does with those gifts. First of all, Jesus welcomes us. He welcomes us. Look again at the second part of verse 37. The one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. You realize if Jesus would have stopped halfway through verse 37, and if he had simply said, all the Father gives me will come to me, period, a person might read that and they might get nervous and they might wonder, oh no, am I one of the ones that the Father has given to the Son? But no, you don't have to worry about that at all. Jesus said, the one who comes to me, in other words, whosoever comes to me, I will by no means cast out. That means there is no circumstance that would cause Jesus to decline any of the gifts that his father gives him, he will not turn anyone away. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever made the mistake of going to Walmart the day after Christmas? Anybody want to admit to that? What were we thinking? It is a zoo, right? It's crammed full of people, but not people who are buying gifts. Oh, no. It's full of people the day after Christmas who are returning gifts that someone else gave them the day before. 
I read an article this past week that said that Americans return 13.3% of the gifts that are given every holiday season. And according to Forbes magazine, it comes out to $428 billion of unwanted gifts, of returned gifts. But Jesus, but Jesus never returns the gifts given to him by his father. He said, I will by no means cast them out. And in the Greek, it's very strong. He uses this double negative. It's as if he's saying, I will never cast out not even one. A lot of people struggle with this. A lot of people will look down on some other sinner that's worse than them. What about him? What about her? Listen to me carefully. According to Jesus, there is not a single person who sincerely and humbly comes to Christ in repentance and faith who will be cast out. You think about all the people in the Gospels and in the book of Acts who came to Jesus and were not cast out. Prostitutes came to Jesus and they were not cast out. The tax collectors came to Jesus, and they were not cast out. Peter denied Jesus three times. He was not cast out. Paul persecuted the church. He literally murdered Christians, and even he was not cast out. No one, I mean no one, will come to Jesus and then find out that they were not given an invitation. Not the murderer. Not the adulterer, not the thief, not the liar, not the homosexual or the transsexual or the con man or you name it. No one. Someone will say, oh, but, pastor, but, 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 what about, what about, what about? No. Jesus said, no one is cast out. Let me help some of you out. Ninguno. Nadie. Nobody is cast out who sincerely, in faith, comes to Christ. So how does Jesus respond to these gifts? He responds by welcoming us. He welcomes us. But then we also see that he preserves us. He preserves us. Look at verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Okay, what was this Father's will that he's talking about in this particular case? Verse 39, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Jesus said, this is my Father's will. His will is that I lose nothing. In other, words, in other words, no one, not one of the gifts that the Father has given him, that's us. Now, folks, if it were possible for Howard Harden to lose his salvation based on who I am and what I've done, I guarantee you I would have already lost it. 
One of the reasons why we have and we cling to this doctrine of eternal security, one of the reasons why we believe that when a person has genuinely been saved, that person will remain saved is because it is not based upon my ability to hold on to Jesus. It is based upon Jesus' ability to hold on to me. Jesus said, I will lose nothing. I will lose no one. He said in John chapter 10, speaking of his sheep, speaking of believers, he said, no one is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. He said, no one is able to pluck them out of my hand. Do you understand what that means? For someone who is genuinely saved, someone who's been born again, to then, after that, lose their salvation, what would have to happen? Someone who is stronger than God would have to come along and pluck them out of God's hand, and that will never happen. Jesus said, it is my Father's will that I lose nothing, not one soul that the Father has given to me. So what does he do? He protects us, and He keeps us. 1 Corinthians 1.8 says, He will keep you strong to the end. Some translations say, He will sustain you to the end. He preserves us. He welcomes us. He preserves us, and Jesus will raise us. He will raise us. Did you notice three times in this passage... At the end of verse 39, at the end of verse 40, and at the end of verse 44, we have the same statement. Now, if Jesus said it three times, it must be pretty important. Jesus said, I will raise him up on the last day. The last day, of course, refers to the end times, beginning with what we call the rapture, when Christ returns, the dead in Christ rise first. We who are alive are caught up to meet him in the air, and then we will forever, we will always be with the Lord. The Bible says that we will be transformed, that we will be given glorified bodies, bodies that do not age, bodies that do not get sick, bodies that never die. And I want you to think about the point Jesus is making. He's saying, because these are gifts that the Father has given to me, therefore, for that reason, I will raise him up on the last day because these gifts from the Father to the Son are so precious to Jesus. He's saying, I will not allow them to remain in a state of decay. But he said, I will raise him up on the last day. This is one of the ways God extends that invitation to us by giving us to the Son. Something else God does, He extends this invitation by enabling us to believe. By enabling us to believe. Look at verse 41. The Jews then complained about Him because He said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Of course, they're assuming that Jesus was the biological son of Joseph, which was not true, but they're assuming that. How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? 
Now, you'll notice they were angry at Jesus, but why were they angry? Not because he claimed to be the bread of life, no. They were angry with Jesus, and they complained because he claimed to be the bread that came down from heaven. Yes, Jesus was born, but he also made a claim here that only he could make, that he came down from heaven, which was a reference to his deity, and they are mad at Jesus because he said that, and they understood him perfectly. Now, we can kind of understand why a lot of these folks uh, would have had a hard time at first believing in Jesus, because apparently, according to verse 42, some of the people in this audience had known Jesus for a very long time. It appears that some of these people watched Jesus grow up. They remembered Jesus from when he was a little boy, skipping down the street with a runny nose and skinned knees. You can understand how somebody would look at Jesus, and when they saw Jesus, they saw that little boy running around the streets of Nazareth playing with other kids, and you could understand why some of them could say, how could this be true about Jesus? That's Joseph's boy. That's Mary's boy. And yet, if they believed their own scriptures, they would have recognized him. Because 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah the prophet prophesied of the Messiah. He prophesied of Jesus, and he said, Unto us a child is born. As the child who was born, that refers to his humanity. But then the prophet said, Unto us a son is given, which refers to his deity, they knew that 700 years earlier, the prophet had said, speaking of the Messiah, a virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and we will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's what Isaiah said about the Messiah. And remember earlier in John chapter 6, after Jesus fed the 5,000, the Bible says many of them were going to try to forcibly make him king because they believed in that moment that he was the Messiah. So the problem is not that they could not believe. The problem was that they would not believe. Look at verse 43. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus said, No one can come to me unless. So automatically we know whatever follows that must be very, very important. Something must happen, Jesus said, for it to even be possible for someone to accept this invitation and come to Christ in faith. Okay, what is it? No one can come to me unless the Father draws him, Jesus said. Now, I want you to notice that word draws because this is the same word that was used when Jesus told the disciples to take their net and cast it into the water. Remember after they'd been fishing all night, they hadn't caught a thing? Jesus told them to cast their net into the water, and when they did, immediately it filled with fish, and they tried to draw in the net. 
They tried in vain to pull in that net with all of those fish. That's the same word Jesus uses here when he says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. God must draw someone or pull someone to Christ. Now, I do believe that there are people who take this verse too far. I don't believe this means that God forces or compels anyone to believe, nor do I believe that this is saying God only draws some people, and we'll see why that is true in just a moment, but it does mean that it is the Father who makes it possible for someone to believe. God is the one who has to enable us so that we can believe. So let me tell you, if you're here this morning and you have any inclination at all in your heart to come to Christ, you need to understand something. God did that. That wasn't you. God did that. If you feel the weight of your sin and your rebellion against God, if you feel the weight of your guilt, If you really understand how incapable you are of saving yourself, if you feel this void that no one and nothing else can fill, if you hunger for Jesus as the bread of life, God is the one who did all of that. Because if God left us to ourselves, We would not seek him. We would not long for him. We would not come to him because by ourselves, on our own, we are spiritually dead. Therefore, God has to draw us. But then here's the question. How are you going to respond to that drawing work of God? I love the way one preacher said it. The drawing gets a person to Christ, and faith gets a person in Christ. The Father does the drawing, and we must come to Jesus in faith. Now, let me explain something else about verse 44. When Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him, he is explaining why they did not believe and It is my belief that God was not yet drawing them to Christ. You say, well, well, why not? I'll tell you why. Because if everybody believed in Jesus the moment he arrived, if everybody believed in Jesus the moment he started preaching, who was going to nail him to the cross? Who was going to nail him to the cross? It was necessary for Jesus first to die on the cross and then to draw people to himself. And listen, Jesus makes this very point a few chapters later in John chapter 12, verse 32. And many times we read this verse, we quote this verse without paying attention to the order that is in the verse. Notice what he said. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. He said, if I am lifted up, remember, lifted up was just 
an expression that they used for someone being crucified. Because when they nailed them to that cross, they literally lifted them up off the ground. So Jesus said, if I am lifted up when I am crucified, what will happen next? He said, I will draw all peoples to myself. And listen to me carefully. That word peoples is actually supplied by the translators to fill out the thought. In the Greek, he literally said, I will draw all to myself. So in other words, in this verse, he's not saying, I'm going to draw all nations. He says that in other places, but that's not what he's saying here. He's not saying, I will draw all nations or I will draw all people groups. No, I will draw all to myself, meaning everyone. This doesn't mean that everybody's going to believe. This doesn't mean that everybody's going to be saved. But it means that everybody in some, on some level is going to experience this pull this drawing of the Father in which He draws them to Christ, no one perishes because it turns out God failed to draw them. Now, in verse 45, Jesus explains a little bit about how this process of God drawing us works. Look at verse 35. Or verse 45, sorry. It is written in the prophets... And they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So how does the Father draw us to Christ? Jesus quoted Isaiah 54 to answer that question. He said, we are taught by God. God the Father teaches us. He has his ways of speaking to us. For example, he speaks to us through creation. We see in Psalm 19, we see in Romans chapter 1, God uses creation to speak and show us that He exists, He is real. God speaks to us through our conscience to show us that He is holy and He is the lawgiver and we are the lawbreakers. But most of all, above all, God speaks to us through His Word. Paul said that faith comes by what, church? It comes by Hearing and hearing what? The Word of God. So notice what Jesus said. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. God the Father speaks to us. And He teaches us. And through it all, He is drawing us so that we might come to Jesus. Maybe for some of you, that's where you are this morning. Maybe right now you sense that God is drawing you for the first time. And if that is you, let me just say this. You have a window of opportunity that has been given to you. You did not open that window. God did. You don't get to decide how long that window is open. You don't know how long that desire will be there in your heart to come to Christ and believe, which is why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. God will draw you to that place, but you are responsible for what you do when you get there. So God extends this invitation to us by giving us to the Son, 
by enabling us to believe, but then also by promising us eternal life. Go back to verse 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now skip down to verse 47. Most assuredly, I say to you, in the Greek it's amen, amen, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Now I keep saying this again and again, and I'm going to say it again this morning. This word believes that we read in verse 40 and 47 that appears a hundred times in the Gospel of John. This word believe is simply the word faith except in the form of a verb. So Jesus literally says, he who faiths the Son may have everlasting life. He who faiths in me has everlasting life. It's whoever places their faith, in other words, in Christ. And what does he promise that person? He has everlasting life. Jesus doesn't say, well, he will eventually one of these days have or obtain everlasting life. No, he said the believer has it right now. It's a present possession. And if the life that Jesus gives to us the moment we are saved is eternal life, how long does it last? It lasts eternally. It lasts forever. Now, this crowd in John chapter 6, yes, they believed in Jesus, the miracle worker. Yes, they believed in Jesus, the multiplier of bread and fish. They even believed in Jesus as the Messiah, although a political Messiah to save them from the Romans. But that wasn't enough. They did not believe in Jesus the Son of God, who came down from heaven, equal to the Father. It's not enough to believe certain things about Jesus and you decide which things about him you're going to believe from the Word of God. We must believe that he is everything that he claimed to be. We must believe that Jesus did what he said he was going to do, that he died on the cross and that he rose again. And we must believe that he will do what he has promised to do, and he has promised to give eternal life to the one who believes, or the one who places their faith in him as Savior and Lord. We've been talking about invitations. Many of you already know that in just a few weeks, I believe on May the 6th, uh, Charles III of England will be officially crowned as king. There is this great big coronation that is being planned, and thousands upon thousands of invitations have gone out. I read an article this past week about the invitations themselves. And all of this time and all of this effort and all of this money that was spent on the actual invitations, they literally hired a world-renowned artist, Andrew Jameson, in order to paint the invitations. And it's full of intricate details, and every single detail reflects something about King Charles, who he is or what he is like, his story, where he's been, and what he has done. 
You've got the king's emblem on there. You've got the coat of arms. And get this, as they send out these invitations, they are literally wrapped in gold foil. Boy, I bet it would be a real honor to get one of those invitations. But there is a greater invitation, a much greater invitation. And this one does not come from London. This invitation comes from heaven. And you don't have to be a head of state to get one. You don't have to be somebody famous to get one. No, this invitation is for everyone. And this invitation is an invitation to salvation. It is an invitation to the coronation of King Jesus. And in this coronation, we will cast our crowns at his feet and worship him forever and forever. But just like that other invitation for King Charles, you know what? This invitation also must be accepted. You must respond. And so the question is, how will you respond to this invitation? By coming to Christ in faith? By believing in Him as Savior and Lord of your life? What will you do with that invitation today? Would you join me as we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given to us this invitation to know you through Jesus Christ, this invitation to experience Jesus as the bread of life simply by coming and believing in him. God, you didn't make it hard to understand. You didn't make it complicated. But we thank you, God, that you sent Jesus that you've done all of this for us, that your word describes us as gifts from the Father to the Son, that you work in our lives to make it possible so that we can believe, because if it were not for you, we would not even be able to believe in you, but you work and you make it possible and you draw us to Christ and you promise eternal life to whoever comes, to whoever believes. And so, God, if there's anybody here this morning who needs to accept that invitation for the very first time, maybe now you are drawing them to that crossroads of faith. You're drawing them to that place. And right now they're there. By your grace, they're there. God, how I pray that you'd knock on the door of their heart and that you'd beckon them. And by your grace, they would call upon the name of Jesus in that sweet, sweet surrender and be saved. We ask you, God, to do what only you can do in these moments to speak to us. And Father, for those who are here who know Christ, we pray that we would then take this invitation that you've given to us, and now we're the messengers. We get to take that invitation and extend it and share it to everyone in the world around us. Oh, God, would you help us all to do that this week and to seize every opportunity to pass on to them the invitation that you've given to all of us. And we'll give you the thanks and the praise in Jesus' name, amen, amen.